So today we're continuing our Advent series called Do You See What I See? We've been looking at some of our favorite holiday habits and Christmas traditions, things like putting up a tree and sending Christmas cards and stocking stuffers and drawing a line from those things we love to do all the way back to the true meaning of the season, to the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's been fun so far. And I say so far because today I'm nervous. I'm nervous because today we're going to talk about something, or rather someone, that, that people are really passionate about. You're either really passionate for this person or you're really passionately against this person. There are some who, from the moment their child is born, they tell that child about this person. And from the moment that child is born, they take this child to annual pilgrimages to sit on this person's lap and to open up their heart and pour out their wishes to this person. They even invite this person on an annual basis to break into their homes and bring them presents. And then there are some people who think that this person is the worst thing that's ever happened to Jesus' birth, they think, since King Herod. They think that this person, if you celebrate this person, if you mention this person, means that you've not only missed the point of the season, the reason for the holiday, but you have made little eight-pound, five-ounce baby Jesus cry. <laughs> and all the angels in the sky pull out their golden hair. If you want to know who we're talking about this morning, as if it isn't already painfully obvious, you can take out the little decoder that you probably grabbed on the way in. You can look at the front of your worship folder, or you can look at the screen right now, and you can tell me, what do you see? You see a Santa hat. That's right, because today we're talking about Santa Claus. Here's my big idea. The celebration of Santa Claus at Christmas has deep ties to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, if you choose to see it. It can serve as a reminder of what the gospel is and what we are called to do as people who've received the good news of Jesus' birth. And it can also serve as a cautionary tale of how all of those things can get clouded in our celebration of Christmas. Now, in order to really wrap our minds around this, we have to go back. We have to go back deep into the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, which we just heard read a moment ago. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read a little more. Isaiah chapter 61, starting at verse 1, says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah was a prophet among God's people in what we call the Old Testament. Most scholars believe that he lived and he wrote these words about 730 years before the birth of Jesus. 730 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, throughout Isaiah's writing, and his book is, is large, it's, it's a tome in the Old Testament, and throughout his, his lengthy writing, there are these, these predictions, these proclamations that one day God is going to send a saving king to rescue his Old Testament people, but also to rescue and to help the entire world. And what you have in this particular section is Isaiah speaking as if he is that soon-to-arrive coming king and imitating what Isaiah believes to be his, his inaugural address. What Isaiah believes this, 
this coming saving king will say to the world upon his appearance. And what Isaiah asserts is that this this saving king is going to emerge and he's going to say, I see all the hurt and all the helplessness. I see all of it and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to place it on my own capable shoulders and I'm going to fix all of it and I'm going to ask nothing of the rest of the world. This Savior would enter the world and he would see a helpless and a hurting world. Ravaged by the effects of sin and needing a rescuer. Now, if you, if you take a look around, you'll see that, that our world is still rather helpless and hurting. That the world Isaiah said the Savior would see still in so many ways exists. That we, as human beings, we are still dealing with the effects of sin, and sin is what Christians call the after effects and the choices we make that are influenced by our rebellion against God's leadership over our lives. We don't like having anyone over us, and so we press against God. And there is a fallout in two directions as a result of that. Uh, sin ruins our lives in two ways. It ruins our lives this way, up towards God, and this way, out towards others. And when you dig through the scriptures, what they say is, look, sin exists in you and around you, and it destroys your relationship with God because your desire to press against him and not have anyone over you puts you at odds with him and makes you, makes you guilty in his eyes of rejecting his leadership, which means if God's going to be just, you deserve a punishment. That's kind of the way it is. But then also, sin is at the root. The sin of all humanity is at the root of all that's wrong around you. It's the reason why we live in a world where relationships are so rife with difficulty. Even the best of relationships is hard work. It's why we live in a world where where cancer exists and tsunamis come out of nowhere, where, where, where people die, where loneliness lingers even at the holidays. It's a world where 10-year-olds commit suicide because they've been bullied online. In a world where politics are petty and personal and perpetually ineffective. The reason the good news of Jesus' birth is good news is because the world is full of bad news. The world is full of bad news, and that's why when at the holidays we hear Josh Groban singing some of our favorite hymns, why we we hear him, when we hear him say, long lay the world in sin and error pining, or we hear him sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom set free captive Israel, it resonates deeply in us because we all know things are bad and broken. The world is helpless and hurting. And what Isaiah says is that when the Messiah, Savior, King shows up, he's going to recognize what you recognize and what we see scrolling in the headlines. He's going to recognize all of it and he's going to say, I'm going to fix it and I'm going to ask nothing of all of you because you've already got your hands full. So then fast forward 760 years. 760 years. And Jesus, who's, who's been born in Bethlehem, is now about 30 years old, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and he's, he's building up this gathering of people who are, who, are, who are resonating with the things that he's saying. And he goes to the synagogue, the, the church that he grew up in, in Nazareth, his hometown. 
And he goes there because he's been invited, because he's, he's this up-and-coming rabbi, this spiritual teacher. He's been invited to come and do the reading for the day, to read from the scroll, and then to sit in the seat of honor and teach, to expound upon that reading and tell everybody what it means. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to do this. So he shows up at the synagogue, and there are appointed readings for each of the days. Everybody knows what's supposed to be read. And on this particular day, the scroll of Isaiah was supposed to be read. Not all of it, just a portion of it. But Jesus shows up, and he goes like Deshaun Watson and calls an audible right at the line. And he decides to read a different section of Isaiah. Which section do you think he chooses to read? Look at Luke chapter 4. Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and now this is where Jesus goes rogue, and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He goes to Isaiah, what we call Isaiah chapter 61, what Isaiah thought would be the inaugural address of the saving king, and Jesus starts saying these words, and he says all the words that we just read, and then this happens. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him because he'd changed the plans. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I love the guts that Jesus has. He opens the scroll to the part where only the Messiah is going to say these words, and he reads those words, and he says, These words, they're about me. All the problems that the Messiah is supposed to see, I see all of them. The the Messiah is supposed to take it upon his shoulders and fix it. I am going to fix it, and I'm going to ask nothing of you. I see all the helplessness and all the hurt, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do it all on my own, and I'm going to ask nothing of you. It's all me. And the people sitting there have their eyes fixed on him and their jaws on the floor as Jesus essentially gets up, and in modern-day parlance, he grabs the microphone, he's like, it's me, and he drops it. And people are stunned. But then what what Christians today believe is that Jesus kept his promise he made in the synagogue on that day. That that he proved himself to be the Messiah, the saving king. He would live this life that was in perfect obedience to the Father that replaces my life and your life of rebellion against the Father. And he he then willingly is, is beaten and brutalized and murdered on this cross in order to pay the price for all the evil that's ever been done. And then he promises that through simple dependence upon him, not by being good enough, but by confessing that you're bad and broken and in need of him, he then takes everything that he's done and he credits it to your account. And he promises that you're then filled with the Holy Spirit and free. You are free from the effects of sin and death. You still deal with it, but it doesn't have to own you because now God's Spirit that has anointed Jesus is now in you and it's changing you and empowering you each and every day to choose to be a different person. And then he says, one day I'm coming back because right now he's ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father like we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. He says, I'm coming back, and all the residual garbage that you still see in this world that's still wreaking havoc in your body and in your family and on the news, I'm going to come back and stomp out all of that so that there will really and truly be joy to the world. That's his promise. 
And then, once you and I receive that promise, he invites us to join him in making known the fact that he's the Messiah and the Savior to the world. He invites us to join him in helping people see that their biggest problem has been solved, their relationship with the Father, is full of forgiveness, and to notice the needs of people, and out of our riches, to meet their needs. He invites us to do for our neighbors what he has done for us, and to join him in the work of making his message and his mercy known. That's what much of the New Testament is dedicated to, by the way, teaching us how to do that. In particular, the book of James. James, by the way, was Jesus' earthly brother, in case you didn't know that. This is what James writes. And James was a very straightforward and direct person. He wanted to rattle people's cages when he wrote. This is what he writes in chapter 2. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James says, look, you have saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you now know that you have a call upon your life to join Jesus in his work of announcing that there's freedom and forgiveness, of noticing people's needs, and out of your blessing, meeting people's tangible, everyday needs. That is what you've been put on this planet and saved by its maker to do. Now, here's where Santa Claus comes in. What we see in Santa Claus, if you choose to see it, is an example of what the Christian life is supposed to be all about. Now, when I say Santa Claus, a bunch of different images come to mind. Maybe for you it's the classic Coca-Cola Santa Claus, or it's the Miracle on 34th Street, Kris Kringle Santa Claus, or maybe it's the, the disturbing department store Christmas story Santa Claus. Whatever it is for you, Santa Claus, even though it's been, it's been warped and mythologized from a thousand different areas and angles, it has its origins in real history, in case you didn't know it. In a town that was once called Myra, in a land that we now call Turkey, on the coast. And there was a Christian pastor, a man named Nicholas, who was assigned to the town of Myra, in a land that we now call Turkey, right on the coast. And this pastor, who would eventually become the youngest bishop, or pastor and overseer of other pastors, this, this pastor named Nicholas, he would become known for taking whatever he had and using it to bless other people who didn't have much, in particular children. One of the most famous stories that's told is that Nicholas, Pastor Nicholas, he was out and about in town and he overheard a father talking to a friend about how he didn't have enough money to give a dowry or a bride price for each of his daughters. He had three daughters, and he was expected to, to give dollars and cattle and goods to the groom's family, and this was part of securing uh, a healthy and happy and functional groom for his daughters, just the way the world worked back then. He didn't have enough money to do this. And so Nicholas heard this, and he, he took of his own gold and his own treasures, and he anonymously dropped that into this man's house so that he could have a dowry for his daughters. And that, that legacy of generosity, it, it, 
it struck the people of Myra, and they talked about it. Now, Myra was a port city, a port town, which means there were, there were merchants and sailors coming in and out all the time, and they heard these stories. And so these stories about generous Pastor Nicholas, who eventually started to be called Saint Nicholas, they spread around the known world, and so people were telling the story about this Saint Nicholas who loves to bless the poor and the needy, and especially the young. You might know this, the uh, Santa Claus is derived from the Dutch, which is, means Sinterklaas, which is simply Dutch for Saint Nicholas. Sinter, Saint, Claus, Nick, Claus, Santa Claus. But it all goes back to Pastor Nicholas, generous to the poor and to the young out of his own blessings. But, but at the genesis of it, at the heart of Saint Nicholas, what you have is a follower of Jesus who is so moved by the fact that his sins are forgiven and so captivated by the fact that Jesus, out of his own generosity and sacrifice, gave to Nicholas that which he didn't deserve but desperately needed, that he is then moved to dedicate his whole life to doing the same. And that's your calling as well. And that's my calling. To realize that God has given us what we truly need but don't deserve and then to dedicate our lives to telling people that you can get what you truly need but don't deserve, and then noticing people's needs where they are being ravaged by the, by the effects of a really, really broken world, and saying, I notice that need of a broken world, that need of a broken world, and, and here's my blessing. I'm going to help meet that need at least for a moment. What he was doing is what we're all supposed to do, flowing from what we've all received in Jesus Christ. So, so the question for us is this, is your celebration of Christmas, is your celebration of Christmas in step with the message of Jesus and the model of St. Nicholas? Where it is about gifts given that are not deserved. That's the message of Jesus. And it is about leveraging what you have and the joy you've been given to share that with others and meet real needs in a broken world. That's the model of St. Nicholas. Is that what it's about? Now, part of the reason this is important is because it's very easy for us in our celebration of Christmas for it to be taken off track and go away from the gospel and into a season that's all about the law. And, and what I mean by that is that it becomes this kind of selfish and moralistic game that we play. Our celebration of Christmas becomes about us making sure that we who are already blessed have a really blessed time at Christmas. And if we have any space to bless anybody else, then we will, but we probably won't, so we don't. Oh, we give gifts to others outside of our sphere of influence and our, and our immediate family, but we give them perhaps not out of a spirit of generosity, but more out of a spirit of obligation. I want them to think I'm a good person, so in order for them to think I'm a good person, the kind of person who thinks about them, I'm going to think about them and give a gift to them. Or we use gifts as a way to try and strong-arm some obedience out of our grandchildren or our kids. Hey, look, you need to be good or else Christmas is canceled. All those gifts, they're going back. Or look, look, listen to me. And this is really easy for those of us who have small kids and we do the Santa thing. We do the Santa thing in my house. It's really easy for us to be like, hey, Santa is watching you. He has tapped into our Alexa and our ring doorbell, and he's watching absolutely everything, and he's appointed creatures to sit on our shelves and report back to him everything that happens. And if you are bad, you get nothing. 
Now, you might be saying, Matt, you're making a little much out of this. This is just harmless fun. And I'll say this. I think that there's a right way and a wrong way for us to do the whole Santa thing. There's a way for us to do the Santa thing in a way that, um, that recognizes the gospel and is in step with the message of Jesus. And there's a way for us to talk about Santa that is contrary to the gospel and out of step with the message of Jesus and the model of, say, St. Nick. And I don't think it's a minor thing. I think we can set our kids up for some theological confusion in the future. When we spend their young lives telling them that there's an, an old man with a long beard out there somewhere watching everything that you do, and if you're good, he will reward you. If you're not, he won't. So be good for goodness sake. And then around about 12 or so, if it's a little late in life for them, we say, uh, just kidding, it was all about Jesus all the time, and he works the opposite way. What? And then we wonder when they come to me when they're 23 years old and they've had a couple philosophy classes in undergrad <laughs> and they wonder if the other bearded guy in the sky who's watching them, if he works the same way as Santa Claus always did. Or they just say, you know, maybe that's not quite what I was always told either. I think there's a way to do this that's in step with Jesus. So, so in our house, we do, the whole, we do the whole Santa Claus thing. We talk about Santa Claus as a real person, Saint Nick, who's still alive and well, uh, giving gifts today. But here's why Saint Nick gives gifts. He gives gifts because he was given a gift by Jesus, and he wants you to have the gift of Jesus too. He was blessed by Jesus. He wants you to be blessed too. Here's why he gives gifts. Because Jesus is the best gift. And he wants you to get gifts that remind you of Jesus. You didn't get this because you're good. <laughs> no. Mm -mm. You get this because you're loved. And there's a difference. I don't love you because you're good. I'm good because I love you even though you're bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's how this works. That's how this works. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Does your celebration of Christmas, whether it's St. Nick or not for you, does your celebration of Christmas, whether it's Santa Claus or all the other things you do, is it in step with the message of Jesus and the model of St. Nick? Is it soaked in the gospel that this is not about you doing for those who've already done well by you or you blessing the ones who's already blessed yourselves, but you giving to those who need and you giving in a spirit of generosity out of love not out of people who deserve? Are you noticing the needs of others and inviting them to come and hear about hope on Christmas Eve or noticing their tangible need and going on less for yourself so that they can have more? Are you noticing the needs of a broken world and sacrificing out of what you have to meet them in what they don't have? Is that happening at all in your family, at all in your celebration? If it is wonderful, you are in the great tradition of Saint Nick. If not, there's still time. We got three days left. Do you give gifts because people are good or because you want them to think they're good? Or is it pure grace? Look, if your kids are really bad, you're still going to make sure they have presents. You are. Which is only going to prove that it's always been about undeserved blessing anyway. So just make it clear from the get-go that that's what it's about. May your celebration of Christmas 
be in step with the message of Jesus. It's all free. It's all mercy. And the model of the real Saint Nick. I see needs and I meet them because that's what God and Jesus Christ has done for me. Let's pray.